All right, we'll go ahead and get started today with the 147th Psalm. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises on the harp to our God who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens they cry. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes his pleasure in those who fear him in those who hope in his mercy. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your children within you. He makes peace in your borders and fills you with the finest wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts out his hail like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. Glorious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful morning. Thank you for the uh, ravens that have been flying up ahead and uh, feeding their young, exactly as your word says. And thank you for the uh, turtles which are ready to come to Turtle Beach once again and uh, lay their eggs and uh, start the cycle anew. Thank you for every good thing that you just keep blessing us with, all of these wonderful uh, parts of your creation that display your wisdom and your glory. And uh, Lord, we have people here from different parts of the, the nation and people that are from Sarasota, and I would pray for each one of them. If they're here, that they would be blessed. Maybe they'll hear something that will edify them today and build them up. And uh, those that are not from here, that you would look safely after them while they're visiting and then take them home safely once again. Lord, you're a great God. You're just beautiful in all your ways. Your word is precious and your son is our glory. Thank you for your son, our Lord and Savior Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, let's see. Do I have any announcements? Um, baptism, if anybody wants to follow the Lord and believers baptism, uh, I did look and the, there's still water behind us as always. So uh, if you've never been scripturally baptized and it's something that you say, hey, I want to do that. Um, the Bible uh, always shows people being baptized after calling on Jesus as Lord. And it's a picture of what he's done. So being baptized before that doesn't really make any sense. It's a picture of being buried with him uh, in his, the grave and raised to newness of life through the power of the resurrection. So if that's something you want to do, uh, just let me know and I'll take you out there and we'll dunk you in the water. And uh, uh, it's not anything that's required for salvation. It's just something that shows obedience because the Lord does ask us to do that. It's one of uh, two ordinances that he asks us to follow through with the other being the Lord's Supper, which we'll take at the end of the uh, service today. Um, this is our 79th Genesis sermon. We're in Genesis chapter 32, and uh, we're moving right along. We should be done with Genesis in about a year. And, um, uh, but this today will be our 79th Genesis sermon. It'll be a little different than other sermons. It's based on only the uh, uh, four verses of Jacob's prayer. And uh, so today will be kind of an instruction on prayer and uh, how to give God the glory through that rather than being pictures of what's coming. And uh, it's something that I've been looking forward to. 
I've never done a sermon on prayer in all the years I've uh, taught and preached, so uh, I, I just am really looking forward to it. Um, as far as the building that we've got going, uh, the past week did see approval of the rough work on the plumbing, but uh, we uh, uh, did not get the water meter moved, which we cannot move forward until the county comes out and moves the water meter. And uh, as typical, they promised it would be this week, and it wasn't this week. So uh, uh, we have another delay. I honestly thought we'd be in the building by now, and we have at least 10 more weeks before we move into our, our new home. But uh, until then, we still have some beautiful uh, trees left before they cut the rest of them down. And uh, we've got uh, uh, just the beauty of Florida in the summertime. So I hope you uh, take time to just look around and see all the glory that God has given us while we're out here. I will not do a New Testament reading today, even though I do have it on the schedule. And the, re the reason why is because um, I read Table Talk magazine every morning. It's a uh, publication of Ligonier Ministries, uh, R.C. Sproul, if you know him. He's a Presbyterian minister. He's very good. He's very thorough. I disagree with him quite often, and I find myself talking to the radio when uh, uh, he's on or when I read this. And today I read something that was very valuable as far as understanding one particular issue. Um, and yet at the very end, he came to a conclusion which is incorrect. And so I wanted to just read it to you. I'm not going to read you the whole thing. It's a couple pages long. But uh, uh, at the end, I want to see if you can tell me why what he, the conclusion he makes just isn't right. But because this is such small font, I'm going to do something that I've actually not done, I think, ever. And I'm actually going to put on some, uh, some glasses here. But... Um, Here's what he says. Um, this is speaking about faith. And he, 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 I'm just going to give you a paraphrase until it comes to the, the main points. But he talks about faith and people saying that faith. He quotes somebody and he says, um, uh, it is silly, but I believe. And that comes from uh, Susan Walker in the popular Christmas novel, A Miracle on 30, uh, 34th Street from 1947. And he's right. He says that's a silly notion that uh, uh, you would believe without having any basis in faith. And I will tell you this right now, that faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is a step into God's revealed light, such as the Bible. That He reveals his light to us, and we step into that light. So faith is not a leap in the dark, as so many people have in their head. And he describes how this works. He gives you uh, three particular uh, uh, elements of it. One is notitia, which is knowledge, notion, or idea. The next one is a census, or to assent to that knowledge. And then finally, we have fiducia, or trust. Okay, so notitia, the first element of saving faith is notitia, or knowledge. Okay, you can't have faith without having knowledge. That's all there is to it. It, it, it would be crazy to think that you would put your faith in something without knowing what you're putting your faith in. And as I said, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but he gives some biblical examples of it. Very well stated. Um, this is, a, by the way, a doctor of... Uh, uh, he's first minister of Presbyterian Church in Gulfport, Mississippi. I'm not going to give his name just simply because I do disagree with him on something. But um, uh, he gives that idea of first knowledge. And then he says a census. The second element of saving faith is a census or to assent. This refers to the intellectual conviction that the knowledge one possesses is factually true and personally beneficial. Obviously, you have knowledge of something and you know it's not true. Then why on earth would you put your faith in it? So assenting to the knowledge that you now have is a part of faith. 
Don't disagree with that at all, 100%. The third is fiducia, and he says the third element of saving faith is fiducia or trust. It is by far the most important of the three elements we have mentioned. Now, I agree with that 100% too, because unless you trust in Jesus, you cannot be saved according to the Bible, 100%. So he goes through and he gives verses and he explains a little bit about it. The three elements illustrated, and he gives this fantastic illustration of the three. And I'm going to read it as much as I can. Consider the following illustration. Imagine that three people are dropped without food or water into the middle of a very large field of mines. Okay? Um, uh, suppose that one of the individuals blindly chooses a path. This is the blind faith person. Uh, uh, he chooses a pathway through the field and then heads off in that direction without another thought. This is not an example of faith, but it is more the silliness we alluded to earlier. Genuine faith is not blind, it is based on knowledge. So this guy goes off into the field and he blows himself up because he says, I have faith that I can get out of here. That is not faith, that is, that, that is just pure stupidity. Okay, so the next one, but suppose that a helicopter appears above the remaining two men and the helicopter from an interested party announces the way through the minefield. One of the men takes this interested party at his word and sets off once through the field. So off he goes through the minefield. This guy, uh, he doesn't use this example. He kind of deviates from his, his uh, thought process, and I don't understand why, because he sticks with two people through the rest of it. But we'll, we'll go with what would be correct in this. Here's a helicopter, and he says, now go this way. And you say, okay, and you start going through that way, and you blow yourself up. Why? Because it is incorrect. I've always said uh, uh, incorrect faith is wasted faith. So I read the Book of Mormon and I accept it. If it's not true, then I have wasted my faith. I am now following something which is heretical in nature. It contradicts the scriptures. It's, uh, you know, if you've ever read the Book of Mormon, it's obvious that it is not part of the canon of scripture. And that's the same thing with anything in life. It doesn't matter what it is. If somebody tells you, well, the Bible says this, and you say, okay, and off you go, and the Bible doesn't say that, or they've misused it, You've wasted your faith. You are now in a, a heretical sect or whatever cult. So uh, that would be the second one. And then the third one, obviously, is the helicopter is up there. The guy demonstrates who he is. He tells uh, how he knows these things. He identifies himself as a reliable individual. You take him, and then you make that step into the revealed light. And that would be Jesus saying, this is the path to salvation. I've proved it through prophetic prophecy. All of the scripture teaches of me. And so I'm making this step into the light of God's revealed word, and I'm exercising faith in that. That is and I, it, wonderful stuff here. There was a very good example, but then here's what he does. He does, at the very end, he says, when all three elements of faith are present, they will necessarily manifest himself in good works. He immediately goes from faith to works. And he has no basis in it at all. There's no basis for what he says. And he says that uh, he starts talking about the actions of the people being a demonstration of the faith, which reveals itself and works. And his uh, conclusion is um, uh, God's gift of justification, but the faith that justifies will never be alone. It will always manifest itself in good works. And so the person on the cross next to Jesus Christ um, uh, said, as soon as I get done hanging here and being crucified, I'm going to go down, I'm going to go to Walmart, and I'm going to hand out tracts. In other words, works has nothing to do with salvation. Absolutely nothing. If you read the epistles, Paul tells people those that steal should steal no longer, but it implies that some of them may not follow that precept, and then they suffer in the body because of it. You have 2 Peter 1, 9, which says that he, he tells who saved people are, and he tells all of the things that they do in order to maintain who they have become in Christ. And if you don't do these things, in verse 9 he says, and those who don't do that 
are, he basically says they've forgotten that they were cleansed from their past sins. They've completely forgotten that they were saved. And I know people like that, that have actually been saved. No doubt about it. I'm not here to question people's salvation. But they have forgotten. They have forgotten that they're saved and they're out there in the world living life in, in, under the premise that, you know, all is good and they're not doing anything for Christ. And if you introduce works in this way, I can tell you that there are a billion people on earth that do a lot better works than most Christians do. Bill Gates gives all kinds of money to uh, 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 foundations and AIDS research and this and that. Man, he unless he is called on Jesus Christ, that stuff is futile. It is wasted effort. Hey, there's Nick Figlow over there. God bless you, brother. Um, haven't seen you in a while. Um, uh, I don't mean at the church. I mean, he's just a guy I grew up with. Anyway, um, uh, so you understand the premise here is that what our Table Talk magazine does, and this is Reformed theology, they make leaps from one thing to another without keeping them in context. Yes, we are appointed to do good works. There's no doubt about that. We are to do good things, and we're going to have a church here soon, and all of you guys can help in ministry, and I'll talk about that in a little while. But if you don't, that does not affect your salvation. There is no place in the Bible where good works are a demonstration of your salvation. People will use James, uh, I think it's chapter 2. Yes, it is, James 2.24, and it takes exactly the opposite position of Paul. But every person that's mentioned in James, such as Rahab, such as Abraham, it, they say, see, uh, let me read that to you, just so you know what I'm talking about, so you don't think I'm pulling an end around you. Uh, this would be James 2, probably verse 24. And uh, I don't want to get long here because the sermon I may get a little windy. And then I don't want to have you spend all day out here. But um, uh, where are we? Philemon, Hebrews, and then James. I'm sorry. James 2. And he says in verse 24, which sounds contradictory on the surface to what Paul says. And so for this reason, Martin Luther calls it a right strawy epistle, saying that it doesn't have any merit. But if you take it in context, it has all the merit in the world. James 2.24 says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. But the works that he cites, Rahab the harlot and Abraham, who offered his son on Mount Sinai, you go to chapter 11 of Hebrews and it says, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Rahab. And so their work is actually a part of their execution of their faith in calling on Christ. It is not something that justifies them before the Lord. They are justified by what Jesus did. Okay, so good works stem from salvation, hopefully, not naturally. Okay, and I just, I, I wanted to say that because uh, I, I've done several sermons on that at the place that I preached at in the past, and uh, they're very detailed. It explains this 100%. So if you have a question about that, email me, and we can get that resolved. But don't be snookered into believing that when somebody tells you that if you don't have works, you're not saved, because all of a sudden you have a neurosis about your own salvation, which should not be there. And you have people pointing fingers at you and saying, well, you can't be saved. That is not what the Lord came to do for us. He came to save us and then to allow us, once again, our free choice to do things for God that we should be doing. And when you come to this type of doctrine, they deny free will. They say that you're regenerated in order to believe. In, order, in other words, you're saved before you're saved. The Bible never teaches that doctrine either. You call on Jesus, you believe, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So free will is an integral part of our salvation, despite what Reformed theology says. I don't mean to get too uh, technical or anything on there, but uh, it's something that I'm passionate about. And I love to read this because there is good information and there are good examples. But take everything, including what I tell you in any of my sermons, as I say week after week, with a grain of salt. 
Go home and check what Charlie Garrett has told you, just as you should check R.C. Sproul or anybody else. I don't care how sincere they sound, real sincere sounding people are in cults, and they're really leading people away from the Lord. I mean, you saw people burn up at David Koresh's uh, compound in Waco, Texas, and you see people drinking grape juice down in Guyana. This is reality. We have to exercise our faith properly or it's wasted faith. All right, um, uh, today we're going to, as I said a little bit earlier, we're going to be speaking on just four verses. This is uh, Jacob's prayer. It's from Genesis 32, verses 9 through 12. And uh, something I do every week, and there's a couple people here that have never been here. I, uh, before I do the sermon, I always do this day in history. And the reason why I do that is to help us remember where we've come from, where we're going, and maybe to tie it in with the Bible as much as possible. So, today is 23 June, and on this day in history, in 1683, a man named William Penn signed a friendship treaty with the Lenni Lenape Indians in Pennsylvania. And uh, treaties have come and treaties have gone. We've broken many of them. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Bible says that uh, we are to perform our vows and uh, our words should be yes, yes, and no, no, and that should be it. We shouldn't be uh, uh, violating the things that uh, we utter. And uh, unfortunately, this nation has done that in the past and other nations have done it to us. But uh, he signed a treaty of friendship with him. Um, anyway, uh, we'll go on. 1836, 23 June again, the U.S. Congress approved the Deposit Act. Listen to this. It contained a provision for turning over surplus federal revenue to the states. Tell me that would ever happen today. Not only would it never happen, we're so far in debt it couldn't happen, but uh, uh, they had the Deposit Act and uh, it was in one of those no strings attached type of things. Now if they do something for the states, there's a million strings attached and we're just burdened down with regulation and with uh, uh, pet peeves of a political party. So uh, I, I just wish that things had stuck to the, the Deposit Act, but they haven't. Um, 1860, on this uh, day, the U.S. Secret Service was... Uh, enacted. Does anybody know what it was originally intended to do? Secret Service. What's that? That's one of the things that came later. It was actually for counterfeiting. It was established as a branch to uh, uh, work against counterfeiters, and then eventually the presidential detail was thrown into the Secret Service. Um, 1865 on this day, got a little airplane coming, um, Confederate General Stan Wattie now listen, this guy is a general in the Confederate Army. He's also a Cherokee Indian chief. And so I, I, I never knew this until I uh, saw this on this day in history, but this is a, a Cherokee Indian chief, and he's also a Confederate general. He, was, uh, he surrendered the last sizable Confederate Army at Fort Towson in the Oklahoma Territory. Oklahoma was not yet a state, and he was the last major holdout of the... Uh, uh, Civil War. There were, of course, pockets of holdouts even after that. Uh, Josie Wales, if you know him, he was one of the... That's a joke. He, uh, that was a movie, my favorite movie of all time, The Outlaw Josie Wales. But anyway, um, uh, I've probably seen that a hundred times. But anyway, um, there you go. Uh, his name was General Stan Wati. All right, then in 1868, a guy named Christopher Latham Scholes received a patent for an invention, which most of us have... Uh, pecked on at one time or another in our life, the typewriter. And uh, tying this right in with Daniel 12, uh, the typewriter came out. It didn't change much, just like if you look at history, how nothing changed for thousands of years, and all of a sudden things started changing. Well, introduced the typewriter, and people are now doing what typesetters did all by themselves. 
And so that lasted for a while. And then all of a sudden comes in word processors, the brother word processor or the Wang word processor. And they, they do this thing. And oh, all of a sudden they come in with dot matrix printers. And, you know, and then a week later, you've got something even better. So uh, I remember, for example, the typewriter went from standard to electric. And uh, the very first time I ever saw an electric typewriter was the IBM Selectric on Mission Impossible. At the very beginning, that little ball going around, and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. This is the epitome of technology. And now I have a Selectric 3 that sits up in a little loft uh, in a uh, storeroom uh, because it's junk. But I don't have the heart to throw away this this piece of history. And um, we have uh, all of a sudden, you know, uh, word processors, and then you have computers, and then you have iPads and things that can do unimaginable things, all predicted in Daniel 12. Knowledge will increase. So there you go. Wonderful stuff uh, from Christopher Latham Scholes. Then in 1904, the first American motorboat race was held on the Hudson River. Great stuff. I love motorboat races. My brothers and I grew up right next to a hydroplane racer, a world-class hydroplane racer named Ted Thompson, right down the road here. And he had hydroplanes that he'd take out in the bay and he'd zoom around at 4,000 miles an hour and uh, really cool stuff. And he gave me one of them. His uh, uh, brand of hydroplane was called Faust, named after the, uh, the opera Faust. And it was Faust 86, F-86. And uh, I actually took it out one or two times in the bay and I never did again because it had some water damage in it. But uh, uh, eventually he died right at the S-curve, right down the road here. He ran off the road and and uh, Dead Man's Curve, if you know that. They've since then straightened it out, so it's, it's not dangerous anymore. But uh, uh, motorboat racing began this day in 1904. And uh, then in the 1931, we have a guy named Wiley Post and Harold Gaddy took off from New York on the first around-the-world flight. And it was in a single-engine aircraft. And off they went, and they actually did it. Uh, a little while later, a lady named Amelia Earhart tried the same thing. She did not make it. She tried to do it solo. And um, this week, I don't know if you saw this on Drudge, but they believe they found Amelia Earhart's uh, airplane down at the bottom of the Pacific. They have a, a sonar thing that shows the shape of uh, the thing, which resembles perfectly the size and shape of her aircraft. So they do believe that they've finally found what happened to Amelia Earhart. And maybe someday they'll pursue that. Uh, let's see here, 1947, uh, the U.S. Senate and uh, joined the House in overriding President's Tr President Truman's veto of the Taft-Hartley Act. Um, whether you agree with labor unions or not and what happened with this, either way uh, is kind of irrelevant. I always say that unions made America and they have also destroyed America. They've become a part of the liberal wing of the Democrat Party and they're, they're more into communist where they put their money now than anything. It's very sad. They funneled money to Korea, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Egypt, in order to get that going. I mean, these things are just happening in the world today. But um, uh, regardless of what you think about labor unions, the reason why I brought this one up is because it shows us the, the intelligence that our founding fathers used in the writing of the Constitution of the United States of America. And the reason why is because the uh, uh, president can veto things that are passed by the House and Senate. But if the House and Senate come out with a two-thirds majority in both of those bodies, they can override a veto. So that just shows you the intelligence of that. And here we are. I will say something that I, it may offend some people here, but it's just the way it is, is that the progressives and the, the left wing of our government is starting to 
call our Constitution organic and changing, and it's something that is not inviolable. And uh, the problem with that is, and it's the exact same thing with the liberal wing of theology, Christians, is they say this is no longer the Word of God. And now you no longer have a standard by which you are based. You just make stuff up as you go. And that's what's happening in our government as well. They are saying that the Constitution is not the supreme law of the land, and it is. And unfortunately, we're facing the consequences of that in this nation right now. But uh, that was, uh, uh, what was it, 1947 that that happened. 1951 comes along on this day, and the Soviet Union delegate, a guy named Joseph Malik, proposed ceasefire discussions in the Korean War. And uh, obviously, uh, the Korean War went on longer than that. And uh, this guy, Joseph Malik, I think the Russians did this on purpose. But uh, what happened is the uh, United Nations uh, meets to uh, enact United Nations war movements and to authorize certain actions. The uh, Soviets, along with the U.S. and a couple other people, have the right of veto. In other words, you put something to the vote and they can say, no, this won't happen. When the Korean War vote came up, the Soviet delegate did not show up, this man. It was an empty seat. And so the Korean War initiative was passed. If he was there, he would have voted no. But I think he did that intentionally because war stimulates economies. And by doing, by not showing up, he can now, uh, uh, you know, uh, generate uh, uh, war development in his country and get their country moving and in innovation and war technology. And as soon, as soon as this passed, he came in and he started throwing every accusation possible at the United States, when in fact it was the communists that came down into Korea and pushed us all the way down to Pusan, which I mentioned last week. And they said we were the aggressors when we were the ones that had been pushed out. And all we were there was just to help reestablish the country. So um, there, the American ambassador to the UN, after hearing this time and time again, used the term concealing lies through accusation because it was so obvious. And nobody in the, the world, everybody knew the guy was insane. But when I heard that term, concealing lies through accusation, if you know where I'm going with this, that is all that we hear today. We have a, a, a something happened with Benghazi. And what happens is they say, oh, it's, it's a, a movie that was put out in Hollywood or, or, or San Diego or something, when in fact that had absolutely nothing to do with what happened over here. It was to get our foot in the door to set up the end time events of the world. Libya is one of the nations that will come against Israel. But these things are being perpetrated on us, concealing lies through accusation. And people are going to jail for things that they should not be in jail for at all. The guy has a right to his free speech. And this has gone on more and more. And week after week, it's getting more and more involved. And every country that wants to overthrow its leaders that is bad, such as Iran, we don't help them. But the countries that are allies of Israel, we go in and we support them. And so everything is being set up right here for Ezekiel 36 through 39. Don't think that God doesn't know that this is coming, but we are the ones that are going to suffer through it. So please understand that this was written and it's more relevant than today's newspaper. Okay, next thing we have here is uh, 1952, the U.S. Air Force bombed power plants over the Yalu River in Korea. So obviously his little pipsqueak uh, chimings didn't do anything. The war continued on and uh, we ended up exactly where we started the 38th parallel, lots of people dead, thousands and hundreds of thousands of Chinese because they're the ones that came out of Manchuria and came down to push us back. Um, my brother over here has a friend that fought in the three great wars of our uh, 
recent past, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. I'm not including the uh, Gulf War because he was too old for that. But uh, those three wars, and he asked which one were the, uh, the, the, the most vehement fighters. And uh, the answer was the Germans. They were really, really tough people. And he said the Chinese just threw themselves away by the thousands. He said you could just shoot all day long, and they kept coming and kept coming because they had such a volume of them. And uh, that's all because people cannot keep their hands to themselves. They have to go and infect the world with ideologies which are perverse and which are contrary to the Bible. Um, 1956, Gamal Abdel Nasser was elected president of Egypt. And he was anti-Israel. He was uh, obviously uh, one that would not support the precepts of the Bible, which says that Israel does have a plan and a purpose for the people of the world. And uh, he received a very large spanking in uh, uh, 1967 when he was defeated by Israel during that war. And I'll mention that again later during the sermon. But uh, uh, a couple days after the war, because of the war, he consolidated power. And I think he also became the prime minister of Egypt. But uh, he eventually died. He was replaced by a guy named Anwar Sadat, who made peace with Israel, and it cost him his life. The Psalms talk about people that are willing to make peace and how it will cost them, and uh, Anwar Sadat was one of those people. I'm not saying he was saved or anything like that, but he was willing to make peace with God's people. And uh, uh, because of that, there was this friendship between Egypt and uh, Israel, which existed right up until our current president came in and put his finger in the pie. And uh, we now have enemies all around. And they don't just hate Israel. They avowed and hate us. And they said that in their parliament just a week ago. How their intent isn't just to destroy Israel, but to, to get us as well. So don't think I'm making this up out, out of a political agenda. I'm not. I'm just making up out of the reality of the biblical world. Okay, um, 1972, Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9 Ecclesiastes 3 verse 15, that which has been will be again, that which has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Listen to this. President Nixon and Chief of Staff H.R. Halderman discussed a plan to use the CIA to obstruct FBI's Watergate investigation. Does that sound like anything that's been going on in the news continuously? May not be the CIA this time, but we've got the NSA, we've got the uh, IRS, We've got the TSA. We've got all of these bodies that are being worked against American citizens to, once again, <laughs> concealing lies through accusation and, and doing things through obfuscation, which cause us to have our eyes misdirected from the reality of what's going on. And we've come to a point of apathy in this nation. The uh, media no longer says anything about these things, which 20 years ago, or if it was the opposite party in power, it would be all day, all day, every day. And we're just, we're to the point where we're apathetic. Ah, it doesn't matter. It's one more scandal. We've got 72 of them, so just add it on and we don't care. So uh, that's the way of the world. And uh, it all fits in biblically quite perfectly. And one final thing on t uh, this day in 2003, Apple Computer Inc. unveiled the new Power Mac desktop. And if you remember that, it's only 10 years old, and yet now 99.999% of them are sitting out in the dump. And, uh, uh, we have the other 0.001% sitting in a, a, you know, a, a thing of relics. But uh, it was, uh, once again, Daniel 12, knowledge is increasing. Things are exponentially getting better and better. Think of the typewriter and just 100 years ago and all the way up until the 50s. And then you get into the 60s and they add in electricity. And then you move forward into the word processors. And eventually you come up with this type of thing. And then somebody's laying in bed and they think, oh, I'll make up an iPad or an, you know, an iPod or whatever. And uh, how quickly 
things geometrically changing as the Bible predicted. Wonderful stuff. I mean, we're dealing with, we're seeing it before our eyes, and yet we stay home and we watch TV instead of reading this book and absorbing it. Please don't disregard what God is telling us. It's wonderful stuff. All right, I'm going to go ahead and read you the uh, the four verses today, and then we'll get into our sermon. Didn't mean to get long-winded on that, but uh, I love this day in history. It's just, it's something I love to, to learn myself each week. Um, this is Genesis 32, 9 through 12. It's called Jacob's prayer. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this river with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as of the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. All of us here, and I mean this as a, the whole church, but I'm just talking about you individually. We all have different gifts and we have different abilities within the church itself. Paul tells us some of those different gifts throughout the New Testament. No list is all-inclusive of all the gifts, but you can uh, determine them from Romans and from Corinthians and uh, maybe Ephesians, the fruits of the Spirit. But we will all excel in one or more of these gifts at any one time, and we can add in more gifts as we mature in our Christian faith. In Romans 12, he tells us this, For we have many members in one body. Okay, obviously I've got arms and I've got teeth and I've got eyes and I've got all these different things in our, my body or our bodies. But all the members do not have the same function. I don't eat with my eyeballs, obviously, and I use my arms for something different than I use my feet for. And so this is the point he's making. He's taking a body and he's showing us how we all fit together in Christ. So we, being many, right here, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So she's a foot and you're a tooth and, you know, like that. We're all individual people with individual gifts that God has given us. Having then different gifts according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, now I'm going to tell you, and if you disagree with me, please don't get angry and just walk away. I do not believe in foretelling prophecy. There are two types of prophecy. Foretelling, thus says the Lord, this is going to happen. And then we have forthtelling, which is taking God's word and saying, this is what the Lord has said, this is what's going to happen. I've sat in many churches and I've seen many times on TV, pastors say, well, the Lord just told me, and that never occurs. And that is what we call a false prophecy. And people do this all the time in churches. They go and they make prophetic uh, you know, pronouncements over people. I do not believe that that happens anymore in the church. I do not believe it. I believe that God has spoken, as the book of Hebrews said, through his son. And that is recorded in the pages of the Bible. If you believe in forth foretelling prophecy, that's fine. I just disagree with you on that. I do not. I believe that we have God's word in its completeness. And in fact, if God does foretell through me, it ought to be inserted into the Bible. And we've had that problem throughout history, such as the Book of Mormon or the writings of Ellen G. White or whatever. I do not believe that's the case today. So forth telling is what we do. We take this and we expand on it and we explain it and we weave it together as we best know how with our limited ability to comprehend God's infinite word. Anyway, he says, if prophecy, let us prophesy in according uh, proportion to our faith or ministry. Now, okay, we all have a ministry in one way or another, whether we know it or not. 
I go down and do mission work every Saturday morning, and sometimes Paul will go with me. Or uh, we have uh, Darla today, who's going to replace Kelly, who does the uh, the elements for our communion. We have this, we have that. Dave will pick up the uh, things afterward. And, you know, people just help. I have people that just grab stuff and they load it up in the car for me. Everybody is a part of the ministry, even at a little church like this. How much more uh, a larger church? I can tell you that if you want to see the cleanest bathrooms in all of churchdom, just go out to Grace Church on Bay Ridge Road, and there's a lady named Janice who cleans those bathrooms. And they're probably 20 years old now, and they are shinier than the day they were installed. She does an excellent job, and she doesn't care that she cleans toilets. I clean toilets. I do it every day of my life down at the mall right down the road. That's my job. But she does that to the glory and honor of God. And that is a ministry in and of itself. And every one of us has something that we can do for the Lord. Okay? He goes on. He says, he who teaches in teaching. There's somebody here that I feel fully qualified to say, I would like you to preach or teach this weekend that's here right now. And I fully intend on using him if he wants to be used in that capacity. And if he wants to have his own Bible class when we have a building, I'm going to say, here's a key. And just whatever day you want to do it, go ahead and do that. Because some people are just natural teachers or some people just have acquired the wisdom to be able to teach. All right. And hopefully we'll get more people like that. He goes on. He who exhorts in exhortation. Well, what is exhorting? Dave, you're a great guy. I love you, man. Darlene, you just, you're the hardest working person or you're so sweet or exhorting is building people up. He who exhorts, let him do it. Okay, in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. Some people are natural givers. They, I, uh, Janice's husband, who I do mission work, his name is Tom. He gives his life away. He, he keeps nothing for himself. He works all week long harder than any person I know and everything goes out to help other people throughout the week. He doesn't have anything at the end of the week except what he's given to other people and some people will be able to help with the church and the bills that we have when we move into there we don't have any now but there's a a point where i need to support my wife and i need to support you know paying for my own house bills and everything along with the church so hopefully people will be givers and they'll do it with liberality if that is their gift he who leads he says with diligence if you're a leader then all right, guys, let's go. You know, we're going to build a... I've got a friend over on the East Coast. I was in first grade with her. Poor girl. She'd known me for 40-some years. But uh, she is over on the East Coast. Her name's Paula. She's a doctor of uh, psychology, but she's also just started a, uh, a, a ministry. It's called Nerve to Serve. She and her husband, and they have taken from just an idea, and they've grown it into thousands, tens of thousands of dollars of giving away every week, taking care of homeless children. They, uh, this tornado out in Oklahoma, they all flew out there and they built homes for people. Unbelievable. And this is exactly what it says. He who leads with diligence. And Paula and Dennis, they get out there and they lead with diligence. They actually make things happen. And I am not a maker of things happening. And if you know me, you know that's true. That's why we need people that can lead with diligence. I'll preach the Bible all day, but I'm not a good leader. Okay? And uh, uh, one more, he says, He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, why would he say that? You'd think he'd say, you know, with much mercy. Well, cheerfulness, you can't be merciful unless you're a cheerful person. I'm sorry, that's all there is to it. You know, gee, yeah, that's okay, forget about it. You know, that, nobody wants that. Be merciful, do it with cheerfulness. So Paul tells us these things. And elsewhere, as I said, he gives the, the gifts that we may have in uh, Corinthians or Ephesians or whatever, and he gives ex- explanations of their use and the conduct that we should exercise along with those gifts. Now, one aspect of the Christian life which is surely a gift, surely, and yet it's not specifically described as one, is the gift of prayer. 
And I think the reason why is because prayer is something that everyone can do, and it's something that everyone is instructed to do. And there are as many theories on how to pray properly as there are pastors who preach on what a successful prayer is. There are many model prayers in the Bible to give us ideas of how to pray. We've got them, you know, we've got one today. We've got one with Daniel. We've got one with Nehemiah. We've got these model prayers which pop up throughout the Bible. Male and female give these model prayers. Out of all of the model prayers, the Lord's Prayer is the most well-known model prayer. Lord, teach us how to pray, as disciples asked, just as John also taught his disciples. And after asking this, we read this. So he said to them, this is Jesus, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Luke quotes Jesus as saying, when you pray, say. Some people take this as a command, and so they faithfully repeat this prayer word for word, day after day. But in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, before he gives the Lord's Prayer, pray in this manner. In other words, use this structure, but not exactly or necessarily this exact prayer. So is that it then? Pray a prayer like the Lord's Prayer, and that's all you need. Here's the answer. The answer is that the Lord's Prayer was given to us and to his disciples under the Old Covenant. He had not yet been crucified. He had not yet come out of the grave. It was under the Old Covenant, and it was looking forward to the Kingdom Age. Okay, So that's your answer right there. Our sins, for example, have been forgiven. It's past tense in the New Testament. So that part does not really apply to us. Forgive us our sins would be redundancy. He already forgave us at the cross, okay? Now, we can acknowledge our sins. We can ask to be kept from committing more sins. But concerning forgiveness, we should thank him for having received it once for all time. In all, using the structure of the Lord's Prayer makes much more sense than a rote repeating of it. It glorifies God. It looks for his coming kingdom. It looks for his will and his guidance in our lives. It asks for his provision. It reminds us to be merciful, just as we have received mercy. And it asks for him to be with us and to keep us from temptation and also to deliver us. An important point, though, about the Lord's Prayer is that it is lacking something. For us, it is lacking. Does anybody know what the Lord's Prayer is lacking for us? Absolutely. I didn't think one person would get that. It lacks any mention of Jesus Christ. We are told time and time and time again in the New Testament, after the cross, after the resurrection, that we are to have our contact with God through Jesus. Okay, here's what it says in Colossians 3, 17. This is one of other examples. And whatever you do, that means that's all encompassing, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus and giving thanks to God the Father through him. As always, our understanding of the context of a passage, who the addressees are, and under what dispensation it's presented, helps us to understand how it applies and how we should apply it. The Lord's Prayer is no different. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, listen to what he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers 
making request if by some means now at last I may find a will a way in the will of God to come to you it doesn't sound like he's using the format of the Lord's Prayer at all he's praying for the needs of others and himself he's telling he also tells us in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to rejoice always to pray without ceasing in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you Paul's idea his concept of prayer is continuous it is filled with thanks and it is overflowing in joy praying without ceasing then is a state of life it goes beyond getting on your knees one or several times a day rather it's something that can and that should happen at any time and in any situation now we have soldiers and they're in the middle of the battle they get up there and they pray don't they and athletes love to pray before a game oh lord you know help us to win this game and then at the end of the game they're taking the lord's name in a different way you know so people will pray when someone gets sick and when they need money or when they're in trouble but for the most part people do not pray without a specific reason the key is to know that there is always always a reason to pray Paul thought about the, the Romans or the Ephesians or the Thessalonians or the people in Corinth and he prayed for them continuously anytime they came to mind oh Scott my friend Scott Callaway up in Massachusetts let me just stop and pray for him for a second he was in prayer for them in the same way we can look up and we can see a beautiful cloud right over there and I can say Lord even while I'm preaching I can say Lord in my head thank you for that cloud or thank you for that little squirrel over there thank you for the majestic beauty of your creation anything that comes to mind we give them a quick prayer of thanks when we have a, a green light on a day that we're running late we can thank the Lord as we zip right through that green light if an old friend comes to mind out of the blue like I said we just just say a quick prayer for him they may be in need of prayer right at that moment no matter what enters your thoughts pray about it if it's a good thought let it be a prayer of thanks and maybe a prayer of petition but if it's an evil thought let it be a prayer that will be taken away and not returned. I do that about four million times a day Lord I, I just wish that you would take that away and then my mind gets refocused if it's something that causes anxiety then pray that the Lord will relieve that anxiety in any or all of these prayers ask that the Lord be glorified through the answering of that prayer that is an absolute key to pray pray without ceasing pray on anything that comes to mind and ask that the Lord be glorified through it praying without ceasing is actually having God on your mind at all times if he is there on your mind then every thought that goes through your head will include him and it will be a prayer and that's what Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament he says bring every thought into captivity every thought keep it on God keep your eyes on Jesus fix your thoughts on Jesus and it will be a constant stream of prayer in your life this is the life of a spirit-filled believer being constantly in tune with the Lord now I say this from time to time and I'm gonna say it again today and I'll say it a million more times before I'm done if you are saved you have all of the spirit that you will ever receive at the moment that you are saved that's all there is to it the Bible speaks of being filled with the spirit in a passive sense and I'm gonna give you an example so that you can understand this when you get married you can't get any more married you are as married as you are ever going to be at that moment but you can get more of your spouse and they can get more of you and it is done passively by yielding yourself to that person and that is exactly how the Bible when Paul says be filled with the Spirit it's in the Greek passive and so it is a passive action 
You will never get more of the Spirit than you have the moment that you believe in Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to give you an example of a good prayer and a bad prayer. The first prayer, the good one, honors God. It is directed through his son Jesus and it is line in line with the prayer that Jacob just made that we're going to evaluate in the verses ahead. Okay, The bad prayer, on the other hand, dishonors God. It is directed to a created being, not God, and it is completely out of line with anything which is ever found acceptable in the Bible. And you may not even notice the difference unless you listen carefully. Okay, here's the first one. O eternal and everlasting God, direct my thoughts, words, and work. Wash away my sins in the immaculate blood of the Lamb. Purge my heart by the Holy Spirit. Daily frame me more and more in the likeness of thy Son, Jesus Christ, that living in thy fear and dying in thy favor, I may in thy appointed time obtain the resurrection of the justified unto eternal life. Bless, O Lord, the whole race of mankind and let the world be filled with the knowledge of thy Son, Jesus Christ. That's our first president, George Washington, from his personal prayer book. Here's the second one. Most holy virgin, who pleased our Lord and became his mother, virgin immaculate in your body and soul, in your body and soul, in your faith and love at this solemn jubilee of the promulgation of the dogma which proclaimed you to the entire world as conceived without sin. Look kindly on us, unfortunate ones, who implore your powerful protection. The infernal serpent upon whom the primeval curse was laid continues, alas, to attack and tempt the hapless children of Eve. Ah, uh, do your blessed, do you, our blessed mother, our queen and advocate, who at the first moment of your conception did crush the enemy's head, do you gather together our prayers and we beseech you, our hearts, one with yours, present them before God's throne that we may never allow ourselves to be caught in the snares laid for us, but that we may reach the portal of salvation and that the church and Christian society may once more chant the hymn of deliverance, of victory, and of peace. Amen. Now, they ask basically the same thing. They talk about praying for the whole world, talk about praying for certain things to happen from God. The second one was from Pope Pius X. It was 1903, and the prayer is entitled Mediator, Perfect Being, Redeemer, Savior, Avenue to God. And this is not a unique prayer of the Pope. You go on and you type in papal poem, uh, papal prayers to Mary into the internet and you will get one from all of the popes, all of them, piles of them. And I tell you what, it says that she was conceived without sin. Therefore, we don't need Jesus according to that theology because we have somebody that's perfect in and of ourselves there. It says it asks for her powerful protection. Therefore, she is our protector with a capital P. All right, it says continue alas to attack. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, speaking of the, uh, the, the devil who continues alas to attack and tempt us. And then it goes on to say that she did crush the serpent's head. So how can he continue to attack us if she's defeated him? And yet, the, what it says here, the first moment of your conception you did crush the enemy's head is referring right back to Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, which is speaking of the coming Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And therefore, Mary is also the Redeemer of the world. And then it says here, present these prayers, present them before God's throne. 
Therefore, she is now our mediator. We no longer need Jesus, even though the book of 1 Timothy says there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. And then finally, it says that we may reach the portal of salvation. So she is the entry point. She's the door, according to this theology. Now, you may be in a Catholic church, and I would suggest that you read what the doctrine of the Catholic church is, because this is not only inappropriate. This is absolute blasphemy against the Lord Jesus Christ in the highest sense. And you will find these all the way through if you type in papal prayers to Mary. You'll see all the popes do this. So I don't care what anybody does when they are out in the open world. It's what they do that they have in their heart that makes them who they are. So be very careful how you treat any church that you go to. Make sure that you know what the doctrine of that church is, not just what the pastor is saying, but what the doctrine of the church is and where they are ultimately guiding you. Because as I said, misdirected faith is wasted faith. I'm guessing you know which one is the wrong prayer. I've talked about it enough. One of these is blasphemous and it's out of line with any precept found in the Bible. If you don't know this, you have a very serious defect in your theology. And I'm not pointing my finger at you. I'm just saying it's the truth. We need to get that corrected and we'll do it today in the next few verses. The Bible, as I said, is filled with model prayers. There are occasions where specific attention is given to a specific need, okay, such as the building of the temple. Solomon gets up there and he tells why he's giving this prayer and what the needs of the people will be in the future. That's one of the model prayers. All of the occasions vary, and so the prayers vary. Uh, what's his name? Daniel. He says, We've been exiled for 70 years. It's time to return us back to the land as prophesied by Jeremiah, your prophet. Okay? And so the, that was a specific need at a specific time. And all these model prayers do this. But each model prayer can show us how to form our own special prayers for our own special time of need. Our text verse today comes from the fourth psalm. It says, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Today we're going to look at just these four verses, which is the very first model prayer which is given in the pages of the Bible. Jacob is about to encounter his brother Esau, who previously intended to kill him, and he doesn't have either the manpower or the resources to defend himself. He is, like the nation of Israel, has been throughout all of its history completely dependent on the Lord's protection. He acknowledges this today, and he shows us how we too can pray when we're in a similar situation. So let's take a look at the words that God has included in his word so that we can learn from them and God can teach us. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Okay, our first thought, we have four short thoughts today, which means we have four long thoughts. The uh, first is obeying God's directive. Jacob's prayer is given in these four verses and it contains several key points, okay? I'm going to give you what I think are the key points of what we're about to look through. The first is who the prayer is directed to. The second is a reminder of the Lord's direction, which is actually what brought him to the need for the prayer in the first place. The third is his own sense, his deep sense of unworthiness. The fourth is an acknowledgement of God's favor upon him and what God has already done for him. The fifth is his petition for protection. And the sixth is that his plea is based on what has already been promised by God, okay? And he's restating those promises as a reminder that they were made. All right, verse nine. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord told Jacob to return to Canaan and Jacob obeyed. He packed up his belongings and he headed off. 
Laban chased after him and he finally caught up with him, but the meeting turned out peaceful if you remember that. Because as Laban said, the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. So the move was at the Lord's direction. Protection after he headed out came from God as well. Jacob is relying on God to accomplish his word. And so he begins his prayer with, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. Jacob prays to God, not to anyone or anything else. And what does he do? He brings to remembrance the covenant which has been passed down two generations already and of which he is the most recent recipient. This God who transcends time and exists throughout the generations is the same God who was there with his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Because the promise is given to Abraham and it's based on the promise given to Adam, it implies that he was there at the very beginning and therefore he is the creator, the one true God. Because he is, he is sovereign over time and over everything that happens within time. Introducing Abraham and Isaac is for the purpose of bringing to remembrance this covenant, okay, which was established and which was passed down through them. Notice that Jacob is not praying to the idols, which Rachel brought along. And he's also not praying to the angels, which he saw at the camp last week that we talked about, Mahanaim. Never once in the Bible is prayer allowed to or through anyone but God. Prayers to Mary, prayers to the saints or to the angels or to anyone else is not only frowned upon, it's forbidden. And in fact, in the Bible, people do this and they're told not to do this. They're specifically shown what proper prayer is. Jacob knew this and we should too. A prayer to other than God is a failure to give him the credit and the glory that he alone is due. All right, so here's something for all of you to think about. Do you open up your horoscope every single morning? Because that is in essence a prayer. When you open up a horoscope and you say, I wanna know what's coming, that is a way of petitioning something other than God. If you rely on your zodiac, Charlie Garrett is a Leo, and so I should marry a whatever, a Virgo or whatever, that is in itself a type of prayer. There are other things wrong with it as well, but I'm connecting in with prayer because that's exactly what's going on. If you knock on wood, and I've got wood available right here, I can do it any time of the day or night, asking for that thing to help me out, that is a prayer of petition. And I gotta tell you what, that is not acceptable in the Bible. So if you are involved in those type of things, think, think about what you're doing. You are giving the creation something that God alone is due. All right, verse nine continues. The Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. After calling him the God of my father Abraham and the God of my father Isaac, he addresses him by name, which is Lord, or in the Hebrew it would be Jehovah, Yahweh. And he reminds him of what he told him, which is return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. Now this serves two distinct purposes. The first is that he has been obedient in leaving home. And secondly, that it was by the Lord's direction. This does not mean that Jacob thinks that the Lord forgot, but that he is calling it to remembrance. You have spoken, now fulfill your word. This is exactly what King David does. He does it quite often, but he does it, we'll give you a specific one from 2 Samuel chapter seven. He calls to remembrance the word of the Lord as a reminder of both his faithfulness 
and as an assurance that he will fulfill that word. Here's what he says. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. Once again, we have promises which we can apply from the Bible and we can repeat them back to God. But let me wait for just a second while that goes overhead, okay? Hold on just one second. These promises that we can repeat back to God from the Bible are only useful to us if what? If we know what the promises are. You can't repeat something to God without knowing the word of God. You can't do it. And so people get into churches and that all the time, I claim something in Jesus' name. I claim this and I claim that has nothing to do with biblical Christianity because they do not know the word. There are promises in the Bible that we can claim but they must be in accord with God's word or they are false requests. And we're just, we're showing our own silliness at asking these things. Please know your Bible. If nothing else, know your Bible. I challenged a friend recently. He finished the Bible just this week. It took him four months to read it. Spent about 45 minutes a day, he said, in it, and he finished it. And I'm so proud of him. I sent, I'm sending him a, uh, uh, a card. It'll be in the mail tomorrow morning. I filled it out before I, I came here this morning. And I challenge people all the time. 30 minutes a day means 154 days you can read your Bible if you read at the speed of an audio Bible because that's how long an audio Bible takes to listen to, okay? Please read your Bible and then you can claim the things that God allows you to claim and not crazy things that you have no right to. All right, our second thought today, our unworthiness. The fact that we are here at all testifies to the Lord's mercy. It is we who neglect him. It is we who sin against him and it is we who turn our backs to him. We are unworthy of the least of his favors and what we deserve, he is very slow in giving to us in hopes that there will be reconciliation first. The book of 2 Peter shows this very well. The third chapter says this, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now the promise that Peter is speaking about here is the promise of the Lord's coming. So one might ask, why is the Lord's coming being connected by Peter to people perishing? Well, the reason why is because when the Lord comes, people will perish. There will be only two categories of people at that time, just as there are only two categories of people right now, the saved and the unsaved. And if you're in the second category, I intend to tell you how to get into the first category before we finish today. His coming, Jesus Christ's return, is delayed because he is merciful. We are right here right now in 2013, but I tell you what, if he came in the year 2000, I would have perished. Were he to have come a little bit earlier, others of you would have perished as well. But his timing is planned and designed so that those who will repent will have the chance. As tough as that sounds, it is reality. If nothing else clues us into our own unworthiness, the cross of Jesus Christ certainly must. If the death of Jesus was necessary for you and I to live, then how truly unworthy we really are. Jacob was on the other side of the cross, and yet even he could figure this out. It's amazing how many people still can't. Without the cross, you too will perish. Choose wisely in how you deal with it. Verse 10, I am not worthy of all the least of the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. Some people simply know. 
They can look around at the world and at God's splendid creation and the wisdom it displays and they can tell that God is a great God. They may not know that he's the right God, but they know he's a great God. He's a majestic and he's a wise creator. Jacob, like his fathers, knew this. It's not by chance that the more religious people of the world are those that live closer to nature. When your hands are in the soil, your mind considers the creation. It's a seemingly self-evident fact because the seasons are so perfectly timed that year after year, the animals know exactly when to mate, the crops know when to start pushing through the clods of the earth, the sun knows exactly when to head north and then to turn around and start heading south. That happened just two days ago on the 21st. It's heading south again. The balance and the precision of nature invariably leads people to ponder the wisdom of the creator and the intricacy of his creation. As people move away from the country and they congregate in urban areas, they quickly lose their thoughts of God and he becomes an afterthought in the busy life of the city. Eventually, he's no longer even an afterthought. He's first denied and then he's despised. Now, if you ever look at a politi political map of the United States, and I'm not making a, a complete uh, statement on this because there are saved believers in cities as well, but it's abundantly evident that the liberal anti-God crowd is generally centered in the urban areas and the more religious people, the more down-to-earth people live in the rural areas. You can call them hicks, but most of them love the Lord. And I'd rather be a hick and love the Lord than live in a city and have all kinds of wealth and not know who Jesus Christ is. Those who experience God's handiwork appreciates, they appreciate the mercies of the Lord more directly. Every meal is a gift and every breath is a blessing. To the others who ignore him, they look at what they think they deserve. Well, I built this great skyscraper. I've done this thing. I have a right to this government subsidy. It is all about me. Jacob has been a man of the land and he has been wholly dependent on the Lord for everything that he has. He acknowledges this and he reminds the Lord of it. It's all about him and it was completely undeserved. Adam Clark, that great scholar of ages past, gives us his uh, thoughts on this verse. He says, a man who sees himself in the light of God will ever feel that he has no good but what he received and that he deserves nothing of all he has. And Matthew Henry also adds in his thoughts on this verse. He says, those are best prepared for the greatest mercies that see themselves unworthy of the least. Verse 10 continues, for I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have become two companies. When we pray, here's a question for you. Do you remind the Lord of the comparisons in your life? Lord, I started out with a teeny little loan and now I have a large company. I've got a home. I've got all of these things. Do you tell him that? Lord, I was this geeky girl in high school. And now I have a husband, I've got children, I've got a family. I put food on the table for him every day. You're making a comparison and you're showing him what your life was like and what it is now. Lord, I was 16 years old and I was driving too fast and I went off the road and I totaled my car and yet I'm still in good shape. I'm here to praise you, I'm here to eat food, I'm here to continue on life. I could have died and yet you had mercy on me. It is good to remind the Lord where we were and where we are now. It shows him that we know that everything that we have came from him and it was a gift to us. Jacob crossed over the Jordan with his staff, meaning he had very little when he left. It's like us saying, I left with my shirt on my back. 
And now before crossing the Jordan once again and returning into the land of promise, he has become two entire companies of people. I got to tell you what, I tell the Lord many, many times that if I were to acknowledge every blessing that he's giving me, I wouldn't have time for anything else. My life has been so filled with abundance and it has all been a gift of his grace. I can take credit for absolutely none of it. And the question is, how about you? You got a wife? Have you got a husband? Have you got children? Have you got a car, food on the table? Are you living in America instead of in, you know, a, a swampy area or in some other place? Everything about your life is because God bestowed grace upon you. Everything. Tell him the comparisons, not because he needs to know them. He already does. Tell him because you are acknowledging to him that you know them. Our third thought today, our complete dependence on God. Verse 11, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. Time and time again in the Psalms, the writer uses the same words, deliver me. David says in the 25th Psalm, keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. David says, let me not be ashamed. Not because he feared that people would say bad things about him or because he was somehow above reproach. If you follow David's life, he could not have cared diddly do what other people said about him. Often, when somebody came, they'd throw rocks at him and they'd throw dust on him and they'd curse him. Other people would come to defend him. And what would he do? He'd turn around and stop him. He would tell them that if that person is cursing me, well, maybe the Lord told them to do so. That wasn't David's concern at all. When David says, let me not be ashamed, he gives the reason. He says, for I put my trust in you. In other words, my shame would be if someone thought that they had prevailed over you because of my defeat. David had the Lord's honor in mind, and that's what he looked for when he looked for his deliverance. It wasn't for the sake of his own skin at all. Jacob is not worried about himself either. Like David, he's concerned about the Lord's honor. And how do we know that? Because he's already brought in the covenant. He brought that in and he said, Lord, this is your covenant. And so we know he's thinking about the Lord's honor. If he and his family is to be destroyed, then those covenant promises will be made void and the Lord's honor would thus suffer. This is Jacob's concern. And so this is Jacob's reminder. And I got to tell you what, we ought to all do that all the time, that God would be exalted in our life and in our actions and not be diminished in other people's eyes. Lord, don't let my conduct be so bad that other people will say those stupid Christians. I gotta tell you what, I listened to a guy named D. James Kennedy. He's the uh, pastor of Coral Ridge Ministries on the East Coast, uh, Fort Lauderdale. Now he's dead, they still play him from time to time, but I used to watch him when he was alive. and. Um, he said that when he first met the Lord, that was one of the first things that he did. He said, Lord, I am, I am not worthy of this and I don't ever want to do anything that will bring disgrace upon your name. And he said, please, Lord, keep me from that. And that's one of my final prayers every single night of my life. Please, Lord, don't let me dishonor you. Verse 11 continues, for I fear him, meaning Esau, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. Jacob feared, David feared, and any person concerned about the integrity of God and his promises is going to fear as well. Not for themselves, but for the honor of the Lord. If Esau attacks Jacob and he destroys him and the women and the children and he prevails, what is Esau going to think? He's going to think, I, yes, I have prevailed. I have nullified the prophecy that was given to my mother before I was born. Rebecca, remember that prophecy? The older shall serve the younger. 
I've done that. And then he says, I've also nullified the blessing which was given by my father Isaac, which says that you, your brothers, will be your servant. I have prevailed over God and I have prevailed over man. This is Jacob's concern. In 2 Chronicles chapter 14, there's a million man army which comes against little Judah. It's an immense, overwhelming force and it was set to annihilate God's people. King Asa knew that if this was to happen, the promises of the Lord, just like Jacob, would be nullified. And so to remind him of his honor, he and that he alone had the power to save, we read this account, listen to this. Then Zerah the Ethiopian came out against him with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Marashah. So Asa went out against him and they set the troops in battle array in the valley of Zephathah at Marashah. And Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power, help us. O Lord our God, for we rest on you, and in your name we go out against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. So the Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them to Gerar. So the Ethiopians were overthrown and they could not recover for they were broken before the Lord and his army. You know what, in 1948, five major forces came against the land of Israel. Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and the Palestinians. There were 43.3 million citizens in these countries and only 2.2 million Jews. The total comprised forces were 710,000 soldiers against Israel's 140,000 soldiers. Now the number of actual fighting forces was less, but the numbers were heavily in favor of Israel's enemies. And despite the overwhelming odds, Israel prevailed. Then in 1967, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and an Iraqi expeditionary force came into conflict again with Israel. They were supported by Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Morocco, Algeria, Libya, Kuwait, Tunisia, Sudan, and the PLO once again. The total combined forces against Israel were 547,000 with 247,000 deployed, along with 957 combat aircraft and 2,504 tanks. Israel had only 50,000 people active and 210,000 in reserve. They possessed only 300 combat aircraft and 800 tanks. They were hugely outmatched. In just six days, Israel had decisively defeated the overwhelming force. They had about 5,500 casualties, 1,000 dead, and there were only 46 aircraft destroyed. The Arab forces lost 49,000 wounded, captured, or killed, hundreds of tanks lost, and 452 aircraft down. Only six years later, it happened again. In 1973 came the Yom Kippur War. Even the Greater numbers engaged in battle this time, and once again, Israel prevailed. The overwhelming number of her enemy's personnel and equipment, which was destroyed, was seen for a third time in their short history. There are those Israelis who stand up and proudly proclaim that it was by the hand of God that this happened. And I'll be honest, there are those that claim that it was Jewish supremacy or the, uh, the uh, incompetence of the Arabs for their victories. But I gotta tell you what, the truth of the matter is that God's name and his honor is tied up in this nation, just as it was at the time of Jacob, just as it was at the time of King Asa, and it is right to remind the Lord in such times of crisis. And right here in America, we have exactly the same thing going on right now. Christianity is hemmed in from all sides, 
The opposition has a lot more money than the Christians do. They've got powerful lawyers. They've got the political arm, which is currently in power in the United States, all working against the Christian message. You can't put your Bible on your desk in the military anymore without getting court-martialed. You can't speak the name of Jesus without being in trouble. And I got to tell you what, it is right now that we can call to the Lord and invoke the covenant blessings and promises that were established back at the Mayflower Compact when this, was, this nation was originally established and then all the way through. What does the Trinity decision of 1898 say? It says, this is a Christian nation. That's from the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Even if we're told in this nation that it's not a Christian nation, the law precedent says that it is, and we can invoke that. And we have every right to, and we can defeat our enemies if we rely on the Lord. Our fourth and final thought, reminding God of his promises. Verse 12, for you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as of the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob called to remem remembrance God's promises, and thus he is strengthened in God's assurances. If God makes these promises, and he in fact is God, he will keep his promises. But a point that we shouldn't miss in this particular verse is that the Bible never records this promise being made to Jacob. Listen to it. I'll read it again. He says, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as of the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. The only time that descendants of the sea, descendants are likened to the sand of the sea is when Abraham took his son Isaac up Mount Moriah to offer him as a sacrifice. And there in Genesis chapter 22, here's what it says. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as of the stars of the heaven and the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Because the promise was made to Abraham, and because Isaac was the chosen son, and because Jacob is now the son of promise, the promise spoken to Abraham is as if it was directly spoken to Jacob. Like bookends on Jacob's short prayer here, the line of covenant promises is invoked once again. What belongs to Abraham belongs to him as well. God's faithfulness to Abraham ensures his faithfulness to Jacob. Jacob's prayer today has been that of a loving father, a caring husband, an assured heir, and a steadfast and de devout believer in God's promises and his faithfulness. And I got to tell you what, once again, we have every right to remind God of his promises and ask for his faithfulness in those promises. And I'm going to give you one as an example right now. Jesus Christ is, whether you accept the premise or not, he is the son of God. And the Bible says that when we call on Jesus Christ, we become adopted into God's family. We become children of God and joint heirs or co-heirs with Christ. So every single thing that Jesus Christ is offered because of being the Son of God, we are also offered. But I want you to be careful with that because Jesus Christ was offered the cross. Anybody like that one? Is that what you want? But that's what may be coming. There is nothing that says that we will not suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. But there is something that will come beyond the suffering and beyond the death. And that is eternal glory in God's presence. Be very careful how you claim God's promises, but be assured that the promises that are there, you will receive in their fullness if you call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
Our prayer lives are a reflection of our walk with God, but it cannot be a general walk with an unknown God, nor can our prayers be honoring to God if they're offered to Buddha, or to Allah, or to Mary, or to Krishna, or to any other created being. There is one God, and there is one creator, and he has revealed himself in the per person of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read you something from John chapter 5. Listen real carefully to this one sentence, and it's not being taken out of context. This is the context of the Bible. Listen to this. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You cannot honor God without honoring Jesus Christ. That is the premise of the Bible. The Bible makes it clear that he is the one and only mediator between God and man. And so our prayers are to be directed to God through him, through Jesus. They should be honoring of him. They should be thankful to him. And they should, should show our dependence upon him. Yes, we are unworthy of the least of his favors. But because of Jesus, we are called his children. What, what a remarkable blessing that is. If you've never made a commitment to this wonderful God who sent his son to die for your sins, let me take just one more moment and tell you how you can have a close and a personal relationship with him. It is the only prayer, the only prayer that he desires to hear from you until you've made it. And after that, he will hear all of your prayers. The Bible says, and I've alluded to this at least 20 times, we are sinners. We are fallen beings. We inherited Adam's sin and we've heaped our own sins up in our own life. And we cannot go back before our sins and undo them. Time is going this way and we're going with it. And so God did something. He stepped out of eternity into this stream of time. Born without sin, conceived without sin, and he lived the perfect life that none of us could ever live. He fulfilled the law that we cannot even come close to fulfilling. And then he said, I'm going to give my life up in exchange for your sins. I'm going to give you my righteousness for your unrighteousness if you will simply do one thing, and that's believe. And I talked about faith being a step into God's revealed light. There it is. It's the Bible. That is his revealed light for all of us. And if we simply call on Jesus, we will be reconciled to God the Father, and we will walk forever in the splendor of his presence and see the radiance of his glory. So please, if you've never made this commitment to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would ask that you do it today. Don't leave here without making that commitment. All right, next week is Genesis 32, verses 13 through 21. It's called Preparing for an Encounter, and it's great stuff in those verses. That'll be our 80th Genesis sermon. All right, one more thing I want to tell you before we read our poem and take communion. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? Here's our poem today. Deliver me, I pray. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, yes, him too. The Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have to me shown. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have into two companies grown. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, yes, I do, lest he come and attack me, yes, me and not another, and the mother and the children, I pray for them too. For you said, I will treat you well, surely, and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude, truly. This is the promise which has been handed down to me. I know you are attentive to my prayer, and that you are with me through every test and trial. And in my struggles, you are right with me there through every difficult day and each wearisome mile. 
I know of your love and your tender care for me because you sent your son Jesus to die in my place. And because of his work in the cross of Calvary, I shall walk in your presence and my eyes shall see your face. Thank you, O God, for the love you have lavished upon us. Thank you, O God, for the gift of your son, our savior, Jesus. Praises belong to you and you alone, O glorious God, for the splendor promises in our life, in your presence as we trod. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word and thank you for the, the model prayers that are given in there that we can search through and we can understand how to rightly communicate with you. And above all, thank you for Jesus who is the fulfillment of all of that and how he came and he did for us those glorious things so that we are now reconciled to you through him. Thank you for the prospect of a week ahead full of blessing and abundance and uh, should that not come, Give us the ability to simply praise you. If you will give us that one honor, then I will consider it sufficient. And I hope everybody else here will as well. If we can just have enough strength to give you praise for the things you've done for us. What a great and wonderful God you are. Thank you for each person that's here and those that are suffering in any way. Please help them through their afflictions. And if it's in your will to heal them, do so as well. We love you. We praise you. We want to give you great glory and honor all because of what you've done for us in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.